How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to Dead Cat. This is Tom here. I'm with Eric and uh, returning champion, our, our first time second appearance on the show, Aaron Griffith of the New York Times. Uh, welcome back, Aaron. Thanks for having me. That's quite an honor. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into the specifics of the trial itself, Aaron is, of course, covering the Theranos trial for the New York Times. Gavel to gavel. She's she's all over it. I, I want to I understand there's a bit of breaking news from you because Last time, one of the big discussion or topics of discussion that we had was what you were able to eat, like just how you were (laughs) able to find time. And the answer was actually incredibly depressing, but it did get a lot of attention. So it sounds to me that there's been something of a development in terms of your break and eating habits at the trial. Can you fill us in on what's what's going on there? Yeah. So, yeah. So this is this is really important. And I'm glad that we're getting it, you know, out of the way right at the top of the episode. Mm-hmm. So I've stopped eating the Starbucks sandwiches on principle. It's just too depressing. And I've also now eaten all of them like enough times that like I can't anymore. So I bought a giant box of Luna bars that I am just having. I have them in my purse at all times. And so now I don't have to leave for lunch because often I'm trying to file because we're now filing kind of daily stories. And did you bring enough for everyone? um, I have shared some with our uh, reporting fellow, Aaron Wu, who has been down there with me for some of it. Oh, but just within the times, you don't give it to like (laughs) protocol or journal or anyone else? Everyone else is like packing their own peanut butter and jellies or something. I uh, haven't gotten that advanced yet. So yeah, I'm just after this trial, these these specifically the lemon ones, I'm never going to be able to eat another one. I've probably eaten like 50 of them. (laughs) We are in the home stretch of the trial. Yes. The prosecution has rested their case. Why don't you actually summarize for us what the prosecution's case essentially was? Like, how did it how did it, you know, what was like its strongest point that it was trying to make to the jury? Yeah. So the prosecution at the start outlined, I think, six or seven areas of alleged fraud. And they pretty much went through all of them um, with almost every count. So there's 11 counts, two of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and nine of um, wire fraud. And they're all tied to specific investors or um, patients. There's like, I think, a couple of patients that are in there. One got thrown out and then one related to like an ad advertisement uh, purchase. And so the areas of the fraud are um, military. She lied about Theranos having military contracts. Um, Let's see, a pharmaceutical company. She lied about like their relationship and their work with pharmaceutical companies. The Walgreens uh, rollout, um, they're alleging that she lied about how well that was going when she knew it was falling apart and telling investors they'd be, you know, national in thousands of stores when in fact they weren't. There's the financial projections um, claiming Theranos was going to have a billion dollars in revenue in 2015 when it had like almost zero. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 those were actually even given to investors at the, like the end of the year in like October. So they, they knew they were nowhere close. Um, and then there may be a couple other ones, but those are the those are the ones that I've paid closest attention to. And right. throughout all of it, they have to show that uh, she intended, she intentionally right. defrauded. So they're also constantly tying all of these claims to her directly, basically showing her, oh, I forgot, sorry, let me go back, the lab. She knew, that obviously, that the tests weren't working and that she told people that the third-party devices, that they had modified third-party devices instead of using their own proprietary technology. So anyway, they've gone through and basically 
laid out that entire case, which they had previewed in the beginning. And I think they've pretty much delivered on on most of that stuff. And then, of course, the defense has worked very hard to debunk it. Right. We'll get to that in a second. But when you bring up Elizabeth herself and what she knew or didn't know, I mean, it's one thing to mislead investors, but it's another thing to do it knowingly and in some way provably uh you know, do it uh, while telling yourself, boy, I'm really pulling a fast one on everyone here, right? Right. Her whole defense is that is naivete. Could you kind of explain to me a little bit about, you know, the the guilty mind aspect of it and how the prosecution has been trying to make the case that not only did she mislead people, but she did it knowing that what she was doing full well was not um, legal. Yeah. And so this has been a big part of her testimony. So or the cross-examination of her, because until this, until she testified, all the evidence for that part of it was circumstantial. You know, they have to show that she knew about this by showing she was told or by seeing emails that she CC'd on, um, you know. But now with her on the stand, the prosecutors can just really hammer her on like, but you knew this was wrong. You knew and because so you knew that Theranos tests were struggling. You And so they did that over and over and just like right. so repetitively. Um, like one of the ones that stuck out to me was around the military. Um, you know, they asked her like 10 different ways, the same question. Like you knew that Theranos devices were never used in Afghanistan. They were never used in the Middle East. They were never on a medevac. They were never used by the military. Like just like 10 different times in a row. So the jury like clearly gets the point. She knew that this stuff was never being used. And she's trying to split a hair and claim, I never really exactly specifically kind of told investors that I hinted at it and they jumped to their own conclusions. She was obviously very prepared for the, the you know, defense's questioning. She had all her answers ready. With the cross, she was pretty prepared and she did a lot of, I don't know, I don't recall. Um, and so she had like a crystal clear memory for, all questions asked by her lawyers. And then when the prosecution asked, she's right. kind it's of, and then she, said, she said no a lot to a lot of their questions that were leading. And then she would kind of like try to split hairs and be like, well, you know, so she sent this Roger Parloff fortune article that had a lot of incorrect information in it out to investors as promotion. And they're using that as part of their argument saying like, you knew this was wrong and yet you still sent it to investors and never said it was wrong. And she is saying, you know, she's trying to like basically say, well, I didn't, I sent it to them and I said it contains some information about Theranos, you know? <laughs> so like Selective, everyone, I thought, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's trying to, she's kind of trying to do that around a lot of things. And like with Parloff, you know, she told him where, um, she told him like, we can do all these tests and we don't. She didn't. She told him that she didn't say we don't buy third-party devices. She said we do all of our tests on our own machines that are proprietary. And I didn't tell him like the difference because it's a trade secret. And so there's just been a lot of like kind of weaselly answers. It would seem hard for any. It would seem hard for any like rational jury to see that not as right. Navigating your personal lives, like dealing with right. liars, like there are a few liars that just want to get caught outright in line. They, they would much prefer to let you come to beliefs that are useful to them. Like, Yeah, I'm surprised she was coached to say things like that because I just feel like the concept of lying and a liar is a very broad-based, accepted... Like, people have a visceral reaction to someone. It doesn't matter if you yeah. understand the industry or not. People have, like, a spidey sense of, like, if this person is lying to me, I don't like that person. You know, people related to, like, their jobs or their family members. And I think the defense has 
has countered that with two things. For one, they've had her admit to mistakes. So they've tried to like make her more credible by saying, oh, I regret the way we handled the Wall Street Journal article, or I regret the way that we dealt with Erica Chong, or I regret putting those logos on those pharmaceutical documents if I had known that they were misleading. So they're trying to get credibility there, and they're just trying to complicate things. So they you know, know this is a jury of lay people who are not super well-versed necessarily in the inner workings of finance, business, technology, science. And so, like, I think if they just make it really complicated and then they make it seem like Holmes, you know, was just a little bit confused or maybe miscommunicated and other people didn't, like, understand her or they wanted to believe other things, then, like, maybe it was just really complicated and and, and a miscommunication. A, a big piece of it is how much like her COO, Sonny, knew versus what she knew, right? She's blamed a lot of it on him. I mean, that has has been a tour. Yeah, I want to, I actually want to back into Sonny for a bit because that kind of speaks to sort of the emotional elements of her testimony, right? I mean, so maybe just rewinding for a bit. Let me set it up a little bit better. I remember in following you and a few other reporters on Twitter, when the prosecution rested and the defense began, you know, their case, was it an open question whether or not Elizabeth Holmes was going to testify? Because just from the tweets, it seemed like you guys were all very, uh, you know, excited. I was shocked. I mean, R- really? we were the whole time we've been speculating, will she or will she not testify? And all, you know, we've all quoted experts saying like why it's a huge risk and why she shouldn't or why she wouldn't or why it's so rare in white collar crimes for the defendant to ever testify. And, you know, that on the other hand, people are like, well, she's a big risk taker and this is part of her defense. Her lawyers have said she's going to testify and like this is her best shot. And so anyway, I everything about this trial has been unpredictable. And so it definitely came as a surprise to me, particularly. How did you find out? Well, I was sitting in the courtroom. Um, It was the very few of the days have gone all of the weeks have gone all five days. But it was for whatever scheduling reason five days in a row. Um, I was exhausted. Uh, it was, um, three o'clock, like one hour before court was about to be out. And like, I know other journalists were thinking of leaving. I was like, uh, do I need to really need to stay? Like, this is pretty boring. Like the defense's argument had not so far. They had had like a former lab director and, and like a paralegal from their own law firm testify. (laughs) And then, you know, we're all like, oh, what's going to happen this last hour? Um, and then they called her to the stand. <laughs> oh, my God. I like, I like almost had a heart attack. <laughs> it was absolutely not what I had expected. You know, we had prepared this live blog or like, you know, sort of a live feed that we were going to spin up just in case. Like I had a story pre-written just in case, but like I was not ready for it to happen at that moment at three o'clock after the very, at the very tail end of a super long week. On because Friday. they just sort of have to call her when it's time. You would think they'd want to start the day with her and have it be sort of a fresh. I don't know. I feel like it was almost a good way for her to like get acclimated to the court, like it was low stakes. They didn't talk about anything important on that first hour. It was just like getting her like used to being in the courtroom. Oh, that's smart. It, I see. It kind of like screwed the journalist though, because it's like, all right, I've been here all, all for three months, almost every day. And like, I should at least get some head start on like <laughs> getting some exclusive information. But then like, so we got really nothing out of that first hour. And then Monday, of course, everybody 
flies in, you know, everyone who hasn't uh, been at the trial. So for all the, the hardworking right. journalists. Yeah, <laughs> that sucks. We got no we So got the circus no atmosphere that had probably died down as people were like, man, trials can be really boring. And it's just like oh, a recitation yeah. of documents. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, here's the star witness who is going to be played by, you know, Jennifer Lawrence in a couple of months. Yeah, she's showing up at like 325 on a Friday. Yeah. This is why the, the media is broken. You know, the outlets that put in the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this specifically is this, why. Exactly. Yeah. The court system needs to, right. you know. The local news cameras that had been covering like shoplifting in San Francisco, like suddenly turned around and were rushing down to get to the courthouse. <laughs> There were a lot of spectators that, I mean, because there's been spectators throughout, but there were a lot of spectators that day that left at lunch because it was so boring. And I was like, man. Oh, man. It's like the people that were leaving Dodger Stadium in 89 because they thought the World Series was over. (laughs) Yeah, the Miami uh, Series. Yeah. Right. So, um, So, but it seems that the core of her case, beyond just her being naive, is that she was a victim. Um, she was a victim of abuse and that she was being manipulated by Sonny Balwani. Now, I remember like before the trial even started, people were suggesting that that could be one route that they take. I, I don't know if they they probably would have needed to call her if that was going to be the route. But um, totally but b- because their relationship was a secret. And so really, right. like she's one of the only people that can even testify about it. Right. And they had they had indicated they might do this in filings. So we had that preview, but it was still an open question mark of whether or not she'd actually go for it. And I'm sure they were waiting to see how everything else went before deciding. Yeah. And just from the reading of it, it sounded like it was fairly emotional. Like she, you know, when she took the stand and was describing, you know, her allegations of abuse, she was crying. She was tearful. And I mean, did that surprise you at all? I mean, obviously, she's someone who in the media has been depicted as like this kind of stony faced, monotone, baritone, you know, uncaring, unblinking person. Did she blink, by the way, when she was on the stand? Yeah, I'm <laughs> okay. I made a okay. joke once where um, I thought I had noticed that she was like blinking a lot while looking forward. And I was like, is she just getting all her blinks out now? Right. For, like, so she can then stare when, <laughs> but yeah. No, it's also but a she, way to get the tears going. Not to she say has that they're crocodile some, tears. Um, <laughs> she has made some intense eye contact. And when the jurors were walking in and out anytime, she would try to individually make eye contact with each, oh with each one of them. Oh my and God. like maybe only one ever really looked up at her, but yeah. So yeah. she but was But that one invested in her company. That's in her, you know, morning notebook routine, stare intently into each juror's eyes. I mean, so one thing that came up that I thought was really interesting um, in this argument about um, the emotional and physical or sexual abuse that she, that happened in her relationship with Sonny Balwani, which to be fair, this guy's 20 years older than her. um, And he was like her business mentor. And so, I mean, I think that felt very credible to me that they had a lopsided um dynamic in their relationship that doesn't necessarily they didn't really connect it very well to the actual fraud um but uh and so that's going to be i think the challenge for the jury um but like one of the things i thought so interesting is like so all the investors that we've heard talk about how impressive she was and how she was so put together and confident and like you know unlike a 19 year old girl might be you know and that was all because Sonny was coaching her to be like that. He was basically telling her and kind of he was berating her, but he was also telling her, like, don't say awesome. Don't giggle. Don't like, you know, put your hands in your pockets. Don't gesture. You know, he was like really kind of like pushing her to present herself that way. And and it worked. Like, How that's old what, was she for some of this? Well, she 
she met him when she was in college, so like 18, 19. But then when for the, during the period of the alleged fraud, she would have been in her 20, late 20s, early 30s. Okay. But, I mean, some of the investors met her in like the early 2000s when Theranos had first started. So they were testifying about all the way back at that point. Um, hmm. Like the Don Lucas's, uh, is it, was it his son or nephew? Um, anyway, yeah. So at Insider, we ran a piece, I believe by Adam Lashinsky, saying that her taking the trial and the tenor and the pitch of her testimony turned the tide. That basically it suddenly suddenly became, because she made it about her being a victim and a lot of the most devious acts of the company's uh, life were the result of, you know, the, the Svengali, uh, Sonny Balwani, that she was merely a naive and innocent bystander or like a puppet for the true evil uh, that was, I mean... What, 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 did you this get piece that same bought boat? into this? That he, yeah. I, this is going to be a, a situation where Eric screams at me. I did not read the story, but the headline. I read the story. I read the story. And Adam I think Adam's is reporting great. has been good. Yeah. Yeah. So w- w- I don't. I don't want you to make Adam's case for him. But what do you think about at least that idea that you know suddenly the momentum shifted entirely towards the defense? I have no idea what the jury is thinking, and so I. I that's one part of it that's a challenge, but I do think it kind of upended the the dynamic for sure. I mean, this has been a very long, very tedious white color <laughs> crime case about business and finance and tech and science. And it's just been like so in the weeds. And now we have this extremely emotional narrative injected into it. Like it's hard not to only focus on that. And I feel like the jury is, that's going to be at the heart of a lot of their discussions. I mean, or maybe they decide to throw it out. I don't know, but like, well, at end, actually, to be fair, the prosecution has said they plan to file a motion to throw out some of that because they did not, the defense did not bring in an expert testimony or expert witness to testify as to the relevance of it to this fraud case. Um, don't you want to we'll throw see. things out before the jury hears it? Right. They can't, yeah, they can't, like, this is, the, <laughs> even if they remove it, it's not like the jury can, like, Especially on an emotional case, right? I mean, yeah. like, it's one thing to material facts. I mean, it's kind of the same as, like, when the when they ask questions they know they're not allowed to ask, and then they it gets objected, and then the judge says, okay, ignore that. It's like, well, they already heard it, and that's kind of like a little bit of a slime ball move, but they both well, sides have definitely used it. Okay, sorry, this is a very basic question, but like Elizabeth and Sonny are both on trial in this case, or they're separate cases? No, Sonny is separate. Um, has a separate case, oh, a okay. separate trial that will start next year. They were they should have been tried together, but they got their cases severed and part of the reason that they argued for successfully for it was that she said she can't be in the same room as him um, because of this abuse. And I mean, it kind of works to both their advantages because they might be able to both get off by blaming each other, (laughs) but they, but they're, they're both very important and relevant in each side's case because it, it, one, two of the charges are conspiracy. And so they conspired together and we're seeing all these text messages where they're allegedly conspiring, you know, when you contrast it with her being able to answer these very specific rapid fire questions, like, yes, yes, yes. And from her lawyers. And then, and so a lot the actually the prosecution has done a lot of hammering her on the, I don't know, like he'll say, that's your testimony that this is your, and he'll repeat it back to her. This is your testimony that you don't know this thing. And I mean, we'll see if that 
if that that would be infuriating to watch. I mean, it's just... <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, it seems to me like most of the defense's case is that she was a victim, not that. And and if she misled people, it was only because that is the nature of raising money where you have to project blue sky futures in order to get people excited about it. And if it doesn't work out, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. And and does she seem like a cult leader? Like, does she have a reality distortion field or she seems she's trying to project being a little bit more meek or how much does it seem like you could see why a bunch of investors were wooed by her? I mean, when you, when she is, gets a question that she likes or that she knows the answer to. She does this thing, which I think you can see on any video interview of her back in the in the heyday, where she like nods and makes this really sincere eye contact and like has this like ki- like kind of weird smile. And yeah, you can see how it's like very practiced and it's like you can see how it's compelling especially for people who want to, you know, believe in what she's pitching. I think it could also be off-putting <laughs> knowing what we know now. <laughs> You're not about to join yeah. her cult. You're like, right. Uh, it's either like charming and effect. It's, it's a thin line between charming and effective and a sociopath. Yeah. It's kind of like when customer service people are like, like handling you with kid gloves and you're like, just, just do or the thing your that name I need. Over and over again. Yeah. Stop doing that. It's like really off-putting. <laughs> just let me give you the money, Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, how's the jury doing? What's your sense? Uh, just this many weeks into this whole thing. Uh, I know there was a bit of drama early on. People wanted to take vacations. Uh, Wait, did we talk about the Sudoku player? I don't think so. Uh, about halfway through, one of the jurors was dismissed for playing Sudoku uh, during testimony. One of the other jurors narked her out, and they had, <laughs> she her excuse was that she's like very fidgety and she needs to like have something to do with her hands, and so it was just to keep her occupied. Did that all play out during the trial? Was there just like a, the you know like a teacher calling out a student? It's like what what do you have there? No, they did it in the judges' chambers, and so we didn't find out about. We just heard that a juror was dismissed, and we didn't find out about it until it came out later in the transcripts. And she was like very apologetic, and she's like, "I, I swear, I'm taking this seriously." And the, and essentially, the both the sides agreed to just let her go. That must be um, mortifying to tell your family you've been gone for like, or you're not gone, <laughs> but you know you're. Well, she was saying she wanted to crochet, but like that seemed inappropriate. <laughs> Do they let you do that? Like, No, I don't think. I mean, no, I think that would be worse probably. <laughs> well, there goes the book deal. But okay, so so we lost one um, for playing Sudoku. But generally, I mean, what's your sense as to their energy level? Uh, you know, this many weeks in, I would just be flagging. Like I couldn't pay attention. I know. It's crazy. And they seem like they seem engaged, but it's it's so hard to tell because they have masks on and they're, they really are not reacting to anything. Um and like there's they're all taking notes and there's one guy who like stopped proceedings and like waved his arm and we're like, oh, no, what's happening? And oh, his pen ran out of ink. And so like somebody had to bring a pen over to him. And I'm like, man, uh, I mean, so they seem they seem pretty engaged. I don't know. Sometimes I look and I'm like, is that person sleeping? But their their exhibits are below them. So I think they're just looking at the exhibits. But I don't know, man, it's. It's impressive. When the judge uh, was planning the timing for the rest of the trial, like I thought I would be in court today and yesterday and, you know, most of next week. And for some reason, closings aren't starting until like a full week after the prosecutor or the defense rested. And the jury is they're like, oh, yeah, we're fine to deliberate on Christmas Eve. We don't care. Like, 
they don't seem like stressed, which is kind of crazy and impressive. So good for them. When's this thing going to get wrapped up? Or I hope before Christmas. It's so there's two days of closing statements or arguments next week, and then it'll go to the jury maybe as early as next Friday, and then the week of the twentieth is all open for deliberation. So I hope, you know, it takes them a day or two and they come back and we can all have a Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you'll have to talk to the jurors, right? I mean, that's always the exciting moment post-trial when they finally speak to the media. But that's more TV, right? I mean, it's Yeah, no, Times. we'll have to do it too. I'm a little stressed about that, honestly, because who knows if they're going to want to talk to us or um, just like get out of there. And yeah, I, I want to know everyone. That's what everyone wants to know is like what the discussions inside that room were. Right. Right. Depending on the outcome. So my, my last question for you, Aaron, because we gotta let you go is, um, so is Elizabeth Holmes a product of Silicon Valley? Oh my God. <laughs> I think about this so much because I've gotten, you know, a lot of VCs in my DMs, like, come on, this is not a problem. I made the mistake of engaging in that debate and I am still getting mentions from it. Yeah. And I think I need to like just dig in and do a, a, a story on it. But, you know, some people are really worked up about this. They're so angry. They don't want to be associated with this at all. Eric's buddy, Keith Raboy, said that uh, when a reporter suggested that she was a product of Silicon Valley, said that was more, uh, it's more untruthful than anything trump has ever said oh my god that's, <laughs> oh my god that's ridiculous wow what i mean okay so just the facts here palo alto is in silicon valley okay <laughs> stanford is very closely associated with silicon valley she went to stanford the hoover institute at stanford is where she recruited all of her board um her initial investor don lucas Legendary Silicon Valley investor, Tim Draper, also like fifth generation or whatever, you know, Silicon Valley investor um, and on down the line. And she had a number of VCs and they the the current, you know, industry and, and commentators want to dismiss them and be like, they're not real Silicon Valley VCs. We all pass on it's like, great. Many people did pass on this and many people said it didn't pass the smell test, whatever. Like, that's fantastic. But and, and sure, DeVos, the DeVos family, the Murdochs, the Waltons, the Cox family, those are not Silicon Valley investors. But like she was still following the playbook. She was trying to emulate Steve Jobs. She was physically here in Silicon Valley. Um, that All of that makes me like. And it's sort of it's sort of it, it fits into like how how Elizabeth Holmes lies. Right. Instead of directly telling you sort of a misstatement, it's letting you come away with an impression and sort of letting the chips fall where they are. And I do think there's a degree to which Silicon Valley culture is also sort of very interested in that kind of line. Like, you know, Mark Andreessen would block people who didn't like Theranos. His wife wrote an op-ed defending Elizabeth Holmes. You know, there, there, Can I read like, you something really quickly? Because when that was going on, I just Googled DFJ Theranos. And there is a Facebook post from DFJ that is still up that says under DFJ, Proud to have backed Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos for over a decade as her very first investor. Holmes's company Theranos stands on the cusp of unleashing a revolution in drug development and home health care that could spawn a new industry, much like the Bay Area's Genentech did, blah, 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 blah. This is still fucking up there under DFJ's page. What, what, when was that published? March 1st, 2014. I can send it in the Okay, in the so that's, pr- that's before the, the downfall, but yeah. And, well, and right, yes, it, yes. But, but if, Sil- if Silicon Valley didn't want to get blamed for Theranos, 
they could have taken a principled stand. You know, we could have an alternative story where she tries to raise money from some very credentialed VC, and they're the ones blowing the whistle and saying she's trying to defraud us. Well, this some is of the, the things she's saying isn't true. Instead, it was you know her employees that blew the whistle. So I, I just think their failure to stand up if they or to say anything, and and also they were constantly sort That's of rejecting point. sort of pushback on Twitter. You know, it, it felt like the presumption. What it was the it was Dave Morin. Didn't Dave Morin criticize on the information? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. But uh, I'm just saying, wide. like every Silicon Valley character was still sort of like trying to show their credentials for how you could be rah rah and supportive, and was not at all trying to say, oh, Silicon Valley is actually about being discerning and separating sort of the good from the bad. And so then when it's it's really bad for them, yeah, of course you're going to get blamed because you didn't take any sort of proactive action to separate yourself from it. And so now you're mad at people for attaching you to it when everything you said is absolutely true. So I, I do agree their failure to say anything at the time partially justifies why they get tagged with it, even if, you know, probably the most directly, you know, family yeah. offices are are the biggest. It also speaks to like a, a current circle the wagons and group think mentality from a lot of VCs right now, which is that the press is out to get us and they are comparing us to the worst of what the, you know, people sure. in the industry yeah. has. Some of that but it's like, if you were to extend that to any other industry, it wouldn't make any sense. If you were to say that someone who makes a movie that bombs had nothing to do with Hollywood culture or that Bernie Madoff had nothing to do with Wall Street culture, <laughs> like go ahead and try that argument. Right. Like, and I, they are products. They are products of the world that you, though you're successful and hopefully on the up and up, are not uh, examples of. It's still in the same, you're still swimming in the same pool. Right. Many of the strategies that she used are used by other founders. They just don't go that far. They just don't like get, you know, they just don't take it to the level of, of actual fraud. Or some do, but they don't get indicted for it. But I think if, if Silicon Valley wants people to know what they stand for, they have to say it explicitly but what's, give us one concluding what's been your favorite uh vignette or moment or like doesn't have to be serious oh, or like God, who's the who's the celebrity journalist or who's the like what's what's sort of the funny or have there the been friends any we more made along the way elizabeth holmes family members behaving strangely or what's what's going on that's not making the story that's sort of like the talk among reporters there's so much there's or the so gadflies much. like who are you gonna miss when you don't have to go to the courthouse three there's times so a much week? weird stuff that has happened like i i um I like inadvertently got in a fight with this guy who had driven up from LA and chugged five Red Bulls and was like confused about the order of the line going in. And like, there's this cutoff at 34. And so there's like actually a lot of, a lot at stake. If, if you're under 34, you get in the courtroom. And if you're over, you get in the You overflow. mean number of, number of people, not age. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And so anyway, that was a little bit dramatic. What were you? Um, I was... He was trying to cut in front of me, basically. <laughs> I was maybe like 32 or something. And oh, Jesus. That's high stakes. How was he? He was just trying to force it? Like He was confused because there were multiple Scots in line. He was confused about which Scott he was. And anyway, we <laughs> it all worked out. It was fine. But there's always a little bit of like line drama and there's a lot of spectators. Oh, I don't know if you guys read about there was one group that came. Um, they were selling black turtlenecks, red lipstick. They kept getting in trouble, though, because uh, you're not allowed to sell things on federal property. And so the security guard kept yelling at them and they're like, no, it's performance art. And <laughs> Oh my God. I, I, I got to use that one. 
There was, there's a guy who has hung around a few times and when Holmes walks in, he yells, you go girl boss, you're a girl boss. There's been some tarot cards playing in the line because we're sitting there for five hours um, every day before the court even opens. And so we have a lot of, we have a lot of time to kill. Have and you the gotten tarot, a read? Well, we, we did a reading for Holmes and it was, it looked pretty positive for her. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's that more telling. You yeah, that would, affect, that. <laughs> yeah that, that would definitely affect the betting markets. So I, what, uh, what was the read? Do you remember the cards? Um, so I'm not a tarot person, but I think one of them was like the, was about, was like a, a kind of a, a girl boss <laughs> card. And then I think one of them was like, is that a real tarot card? I, well, this was the interpretation of the person uh, who was doing it. And one of them was um, maybe something about, Oh crap! Now I sorry. I'm totally the, the, the great unblinking eye. <laughs> yeah, there was one about like fortune or having having things work out for you. There was one maybe about deception. I I really can't remember now. Sorry, well, that's this is disappointing. Tough but, break um, for the prosecution. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Aaron. Uh, All thanks right, so, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, enjoy yeah. your days off, and uh, hopefully enjoy having a real Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for <laughs> not, having me, not guys. In San Jose. <laughs> All right, cool. That was great. Oh, the judge also keeps keeps calling the trial a movable feast, which like just a really Hemingway upset, fan really upsets me because I'm like this could not be further from like, <laughs> I'm sitting on the ground right, for five Luna hours a day all around you yeah eating Luna bars um, this is this could not be farther than Hemingway's Paris <laughs> yeah. Can you give me the recap on Erin? Did she think that Elizabeth Holmes was convincing? Mm, didn't seem like it. No. And I had asked her because Insider ran a piece by Adam Lashinsky actually saying that like when Elizabeth Holmes testified and gave a tearied, you know, whatever, tearful explanation of how she was manipulated and abused by Sonny Belwani, that that changed the entire momentum of the trial into the defense's favor. And she was, I think, a little more skeptical. Hmm. About that. <laughs> but she's not, yeah. I don't think she can really... Say outright. That was my interpretation. Wait, right. where's this Chris Dixon tweet? So, so what happened? I can I can give you the whole rundown. It's like the the Twitter recap section. Um, yeah. Uh, so, some Bloomberg reporter tweeted out something to the effect of like, someone just told me that crypto is is Mary Kay for males, and I'm dying right now, or some like internet. A cosmetics company that nobody yeah. uses anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a pretty weak joke, like a four out of 10. But it, it you know, became viral because that's what succeeds these days. So it got like 7,000 retweets. And you know what? I blame uh, TikTok for that because it's made us all laugh at things that aren't funny anymore. It's all funny. Especially all funny. reporters. Tracy um, Alloway <laughs> just saw someone describe crypto as Mary Kay for young men. And now I'm dying. Right. Wow. Yeah. It has like 13,000 awful awful just no effort no degree of difficulty i see him say it's just a way for bloomberg to try and insult web 3 yet again on december 7th this is chris dixon so then he has a follow-up tweet to that that says this is why we should never talk to reporters all they do is use it as an opportunity to dunk on you later on twitter on december 8th he says web 3 is unusual in that innovators dilemma plays out at every level including media coverage and then he says which is also why it's a great opportunity for up-and-coming journalists. You know, they know that they need journalists, but they can't help themselves but shit on journalists constantly. It's, yeah, I'm trying to find... I think maybe everything's changed since I left, but I I vaguely recall when I lived in California that 
A16Z actually didn't hate. They kind of liked us. I mean, they, it was like, it was mixed, right? Like they liked us when they liked us and they didn't when they didn't like any normal company. So it's just now like just a all, they're all out. They're like, no, never mind. I mean, Chris Dixon is super anti-media. I mean, definitely. I'm looking through all this. Former piece. board member at BuzzFeed. So yeah, big, big. Whoa, but, yeah, I didn't led, realize that. Led the Andreessen investment in, in BuzzFeed. Oh my so, God. That's oh, they invested uh, in BuzzFeed? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. One of my favorite uh, investment posts. So, but they must still be locked up. I mean, the IPO didn't let anyone out. Well, he stepped down from the board. So I don't know what BuzzFeed, uh, Andreessen's state currently is in, in BuzzFeed. But yes, they invested in 2014. I remember this because it wasn't long after I joined the information. And Chris Dixon put out a post explaining their investment, saying that essentially BuzzFeed is a tech company. If, if you want so, real Web3 news, go direct and follow primary sources. I mean, clearly the flip side of this is that Andreessen is super vindicated in their anti-media stance. Andreessen is super vindicated uh, this week because of that Business Week piece uh, that basically said that Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz were starting to phase back their involvement in the firm when they seem like the most workaholic. And if anything, I would say the narrative on Andreessen is that those two are domineering over the firm, that there's a very clear hierarchy within the firm. And there is a lot of jealousy among partners about who gets status and sort of what the pecking order is. So I was very surprised. Sure. They're moving places and like, we're all remote now, but the idea that they're, stepping, uh, putting their, taking their foot off the gas in any way because they're on fewer board seats, I found super implausible. And then, you know, Mark and Ben jumped on Twitter to make fun of the story. And it just was, I feel bad for uh, my former colleagues a little bit because I didn't think it uh, made them look great. Yeah, and also like <clears throat> they're stepping back is it proven that they're the people who've made all the best investments and it would actually impact the firm's performance at all? I mean, I thought Ben is, I mean, Mark, Mark is not Mark. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a story that, you know, Mark is not personally necessarily the best picker, but is a good seller for the firm is good at the vision, sort of the marketer, super smart You need need a, you need a salesman. Yeah. But that's been true forever. That's not a change. I mean, right. And Ben, but Ben, I mean, is, you know, uh, super involved in a lot of the hard decisions. And I know he's super involved in the crypto fund. So uh, yeah, I found that story a little, maybe maybe they'll look smart. But I mean, the, you know, these things phase out for so long. I, just, I, I feel like it was a big claim to make too. Well, the other part of it was that they had stepped off of a couple of their boards, right? They'd gone from like 11 boards to seven boards, which... I don't, I don't know what that really means. If that's, I mean, out of time. Right. Well, we have the information predicting, you know, what Berber and the information predicting that Andreessen's going to go public. I, I don't have the sourcing to say that. I wrote a story saying that they had the ambitions to be like an Apollo. I didn't think that meant they needed to do a public listing, but they're clearly growing that firm enormously. So they're doing a ton of work. I mean, it's a huge the management of the firm is becoming bigger and bigger. The only reason I think that an IPO for Andreessen would be smart and probably not for a lot of other VC firms is because their operation is so large and encompasses so much outside of investing that like in order for just the profits from investment to continue to always consistently support that many human beings who do that many non-investing activities, it would be possibly nice to have a public market 
support system um, so they could build off of that. You know, kind of like what Blackstone did. I met Chris Dixon once. He'll never remember me, but we met at an Andreessen event and I thought he was really smart and interesting to talk to. I don't know. Am I yeah. not supposed to like these people? I met him also at one and I was, of course, trying to work him for information about BuzzFeed. Um, oh, hilarious. Little did I know he didn't really give a shit about BuzzFeed. He was about to... <laughs> He was, he was just moving. dying to get off the board. Yeah. Well, was I, like, I was listening to him talk. Never he heard was on of him. The, he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast with Naval. And the funny thing about, you know, obviously sort of Chris and Naval seem much smarter than Tim. And Tim just plays sort of the bemused, like, explain this to me. Uh, which, which is, you know, I guess the softball uh, tech loves that it's just like, oh, yeah, we're the gods explaining the world to you. But, um, I mean, Chris like clearly loves philosophy. In some ways, he is the kind of person reporters like where he's very sort of humanities interested. Um, so it's sort of sad that there's this breakdown. Who knew this was going to be a love letter to Chris Dixon? Here you, there you go. Well, he, that's our, that's he, our contrarian he, stance. I mean, <laughs> he's, you know, on the forefront of crypto right now. One of the most important things going on in the world and exciting thing. It's sort of, Sat, because the breakdown with the media in some ways is a breakdown, you know, with the public. It's like, oh, fuck you, like translating oh, yeah. what I'm saying. And, and that's a big issue like beyond what Andreessen Horowitz right. is doing. I mean, that's like just a bigger thing altogether. I mean, they would never say that, obviously. They would take great umbrage at the idea that the media and the public could be switched, you know, for each other in a sentence. But I, I just think realistically that's that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you who has no problem getting uh, hype and excitement from the media, though, is every AR product that ever was released uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, there's no shortage of reporters willing to traipse over to whatever location to try on the next pair of ugly ass glasses uh, that do like 2% of what who, the entire who put technology out, what's, has what's the latest one? Well, and I don't want to call it reporters individually because if I were covering the company, I would probably have gone to and written something nice about it. In fact, you might have been forced to go yeah well that's part of it too um snap uh had like a developer day for reporters where they put out the latest version of their augmented reality glasses and got pretty pretty nice write-ups from uh the verge uh alex heath a former colleague of mine and uh and casey newton who basically were saying like look it's limited uh what it can do the field of vision from for augmented reality is not all that great and the things it can do are mostly in the realm of toy rather than huge, you know, world changing technology. But the kernel of what it could be is there. And for the first time in my life, I can see, you know, over the horizon what this thing is promised. And like, look, maybe in the elation of some, trying something cool and new, you might think something like that. But it's, again, hard for me to square that mentality with the either ignorance or derision of crypto, which is like I was saying before we started recording, probably at the same stage in terms of public acceptance and like. But I, I think the two reporters you mentioned are also very intrigued by crypto too. So that's one yeah. flaw with your your claim here that somehow AR right. gets more fawning coverage than crypto. No, I mean they both they both are. I guess what I want to see is like why not someone write a piece saying how they I just had a crypto uh, like an AR demo and it sucked. Yeah, this, this is, kind of goes back to a conversation we had ages ago where it was like, what is the benefit of writing that something is just bad? Right. Why, why not just ignore it? Why not just ignore it? Like, did we, nobody wanted to say, 
I don't know, write a big story about how the flying car was a stupid waste of money and it was going to be a drag on companies that tried it. Like, it's just like, why bother? Just ignore well, a, it. A funny phenomenon, you know, is people who quote tweet tweets that they hate. You know, it's like, oh, you're distributing this very thing you profess to despise. And, and, and so it, it's just a very human online condition that you amplify the very thing you wish to suppress. But do you read stories about things that people don't like? I mean, I don't unless it's Anthony. What well, did you read? Um, he dislikes. Movies. I mean, obviously, if it's well written, did you read the wonderful piece about that? Uh, the one star Michelin restaurant. I think it was in some Italian city. It was, I think, 27 courses, mostly consisting of like fish flavored foam. They left hungry. It was hysterical. That's true. But I didn't see that as necessarily something about a I didn't see that as this is something I disliked. I saw that more as this is something that was extraordinarily weird and unlikable. (laughs) What I loved more was the chef's response, which was the increasingly abstract pictures, images of a man on a horse. Right. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, somebody somebody translated it as like, oh, his response wasn't, oh, the food's actually good. Like, fuck you. It's I'm trying to abstract away the nece- necessity of food being totally. good, which is he was like, never anybody the response. can give you an enjoyable meal. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, right. oh yeah, I wasn't trying for it to taste great. I was, I was trying to be this really upsetting, you know, amalgam. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was like, it was like, you know, watching the movie Breaking the Waves or something, or like, I mean, it was just like, right? Yeah, anybody can charge you two hundred dollars and make you feel like you just had a great time. I'm going to do something different. (laughs) Right. Sustenance and enjoyment, like that's very 20th century when it comes to food. Like what about just pure confusion and like disgust? Right. I will say, I actually thought, I I liked the article. I thought it was kind of annoyingly written and it was like a certain kind of internet language that I just find sort of tiresome. Well, it knew that it was probably going to go viral or was written as sort of like uh, Yeah, I don't know. Just uh, Well, just still that. I'm curious what you didn't like. I can bring up the article specifically. There were just lines here and there that were just like derivative of a certain type of like internet humor that I just thought right. was tiresome. Um, and it, it didn't was like, feel yeah, like the first. But I will of say all genre. of it to me, all of it to me was worthwhile just for the photo and idea of licking whatever fish foam out of a mold cast of the chef's mouth. I mean that is that is genius level stuff. But it seemed like that idea itself wasn't purely novel and that other restaurants have done. Specifically like the cast of the show. I thought thought I saw some other pictures of. um, Yeah. No one's done that at NOPA. So it's as much as I know. Yes. Let he who has not gone to a tasting meal cast the first stone. Yeah. I I went to Guy Savoy in Paris, which is several Michelin stars. It's just like the problem with that is you just need to be like, you, you get wealthy enough, you can afford the wealthy thing, but you're not wealthy enough to not care about the thing you're, you know, it's like, I right, was too price special. conscious, you know, it's like, you, I could maybe enjoy that meal if it was like the amount of money was like a throwaway to me. So then it was like, whatever, but it's just, they're try, you're, if you see it as, why are you guys trying to upsell me? Like every time the, I think the water bottle, we, we got, ta- we, oh, sorry, we didn't get tap water. We asked for just water. And what they gave us was like a, bottle of water and we had two of them. So our our water budget for that meal was like $50 alone. And it was Uh also lunch. We went for lunch. Was the water paired with the individual dishes? (laughs) No, there was not a water sommelier. And 
you know, we, we went for lunch and then you get the like actual lunch menu and to get like the veal or something is like a 60 euro upcharge. Um, oh, Sarah Jo, Sarah Jo is overhearing me. She just G chatted me. The, the bottle, it was 28 euros a bottle. I'm underselling it. But was the restaurant like, was it a, a place where you're like, this is really fancy and lovely. And did you feel like not doing something like very special there was a lost opportunity, like a big milestone event. Did you feel like <laughs> you lost an opportunity because it might've been the best setting for right. such a, a thing? I can't get it. I can't get it. Oh, I was just going to say Eric lost the opportunity to write a blog post about it, but maybe there are things that matter more than that. I don't know. Of course, the restaurant you enjoy the most is the one we had this terrible bike ride that was like so many times too difficult for us. Um, but the lunch we had, you know, frantically worried the lunch places were going to be closed was, you know, the best meal of the trip because you're like exhausted. We uh, we ordered uh, espressos during the cheese course, you know, during dessert. And the waitress, who seemed like she must have been the owner, like scolded us that we couldn't wait until the cheese course was done to have the espresso at the appropriate time. And she she literally walks up to one table and she's like, you're a good French couple. <laughs> she goes up to another, you're a good French couple and you oh, Americans shit. have no, I mean, it was in good fun, but it was just like classic, like we're anxious no. about, you know, get it. We, we want to get out of there, like continue our bike ride. And it's like, take the lunch, you know, enjoy the espresso when it, when you're honestly, Eric, let him have it, give it to them. Cause that's literally the last thing Europeans have. I know. Is, well, it, I, it's, it's like is knowing the fact, that they're better than us. Is knowing I'm, I'm that they're the, better than us in any sort of like, you know, refined uh, cultural setting. I'm the terrible American who comes back and I'm like, nobody was working there. Like, where, where are all the white collar workers on their laptops, like grinding away? Like, it seems like a very yeah. chill. Who are all these people <laughs> enjoying themselves? Right, exactly. Who has, who has time for these like lunches, you know? I'm Did you write so, them? Oh, God, I got to get that gig. I got to get whatever gig? gig is affording them the ability to take a lunch. <laughs> so I want long. that job. Like, I, I think just like socialism plus a declining empire. I mean, I we've got the declining empire part. Right. That's see, That should be the next step for America then. It's like if we already are in the point of like decay as a as a nation and as a power, like why can't we just start enjoying ourselves? Like, well, see, that's like, the problem. We're we're going the, um, you know, the scramble for scarce resources route while like five people have everything. It's a really, it's a really tough Rotoho. Right. Yeah. It's like, let's invent like a war with China and try to like outwork their 997 or whatever the fuck they call it. Yeah. When the French are just like, or we could just drink espresso for seven hours a day. It's great. That's why you should drink so much alcohol at night to get to sleep. Right. I actually, the, the one aspect of that, you know, the, the bad restaurant review that resonated with me was the fact that they left hungry at the end. Yes. They were just like, it didn't, it wasn't even filling. And yes. I, actually, I actually think that's kind of a perk because anytime I've gone to those like <laughs> multi-course restaurants, you eat so much and it's too many different foods in your stomach. I always, and it's gross. It's gross. I always feel yes. terrible. That's why the fanciest place you should go yeah. is the place where you can spend as much as you need to, to have a like, buffet, the good time. <laughs> right. Right. Just go back for seconds. Like it's your fault if you're still hungry. <laughs> Exactly. There was a place in LA when I lived there where Rose and I went to that when we ordered dessert, it was like a cake or something, a slice of cake. And it was just crumbs. It was just like <laughs> crumbs of various sizes on the plate. And the waiter brought it out. And Rose and I just started laughing. It's like, and did we, you eat this? On the and way we here? looked at the waiter and he looked down at it and he kind of shrugged. And we're just like, 
eh, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> like, I don't think it was the intention. Like, I'm pretty sure the chef just dropped the cake and then just tried to like cobble it together back on the plate. Have you ever been to Carbone? <laughs> I mean, that's very New York. You guys probably know. Yes. Like, I like that place. I mean, good. I know. That, that was a restaurant where the portions I thought were, we ate way too much. We ordered like it was like one of those small plates things. We were literally destroyed. Yeah, it was so rich. The weird thing about that place is that because it was one of the only, like one of three places people went to in Miami, I, I, I like heard about it so much. And then I just conflated the New York restaurant with like this weird Miami outpost and like this mm. culture of just like, I just, I, so I have this weird vibe, <laughs> a bad feeling about it, but the food is good. Yeah. Well, there's a whole genre of TikToker who tells you what places are in, in New York. And I do. Think oh yeah. I'm obsessed with it. We sort of got brainwashed by, by like the Carbone TikTok. So now you're both on TikTok. I- Eric, I thought you were getting off. <laughs> I deleted it. Literally, I deleted it for the week up until today. I was like, eh, I'm bored. Like, what am I doing? I just, I publish. Like, I'm allowed to be on TikTok. Like, what else will I text people but TikTok videos? Like, it's not like I talk to anyone anymore. Here's a link. That's, well, you're, you're both lost then. You, you stand no chance. <laughs> so we're done. I made a clean break. All right, let's talk one more thing of substance. What do you want? Oh, to yeah. Do? Okay. Um, I don't know. You want to talk about Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think, no. do people like it? I mean, no. I, I do worry that it, there's a level no. of like people are tired of it. Nah, let's take, a, let's take a week off Facebook. Like people don't, yeah, no, that's okay. Though I did, there was a story that Eric sent over that I very dutifully read. Hold on. The one about the better CEO? My YC piece. Oh yeah, well that was just like, hmm. I mean, not a huge surprise, just sort of your basic shitty corporate behavior. Um, But this whole thing about Carolyn Everson leaving so oh, yeah. soon... And I was really Tom's like Instacart. I can talk about what I can talk about. It's fine. Like I, I didn't. I mean, I guess, of course, Tom. That is one of your companies. But I just thought it was interesting because she had had such an amazing career at Facebook. She She was a Sheryl Sandberg lieutenant, right? And then she got passed over for Marnie, right? But she was not in the Sheryl crew. She was. This is yeah, and this is something I don't quite understand about like being powerful and like super wealthy is that when you get passed over a job, but you still have the really powerful job you had that made you wealthy, where lots of people respect you, you're so irritated that you get passed over that you just throw up your hands and walk away. Mm -hmm. That is something I don't understand because I guess I've never been powerful enough (laughs) to be like, you know what then? Screw you. I'm, I do not accept this extremely powerful position I already have. Right, that, that I've continued having. Well, it's just like, I don't think that's yeah. how you say screw you in the Sheryl Sandberg world. I'm sure it's like you something You say fuck off. Your eyes are, you know, totally blank. And you're like, I'm so grateful for the time I've had working with you. <laughs> and I'm so sorry that I need to leave to do nothing specific yet. You know, like... Uh, right. It, you know, it, it's, know, it's who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but said at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> No, said it like a lady sewing circle. But um, I just, you know, she goes to Instacart. It's unclear what she's going to do. You see that she's overseeing marketing, messaging, um, you know, all Washington DC related things. Like kind of just she's just overseeing anything that touches any human being outside of Instacart. And then she was like, you know what? This is not for me. And I'm getting three I'm months. 
three months in, like what happened? And she was, she was friendly with Fiji too. It wasn't like they were, you know, like, oh, I didn't realize what I was getting into. Like they worked closely together because Fiji was one of the top at, you know, digital, not top, but she was definitely involved in the digital ads world within Facebook. So this wasn't like, you know, an odd couple that was yoked together through requirements and, you know, obligation to get execs in there. I mean, to me, what's interesting now without tipping my hand too much uh, about the topic is like, for the longest time, the Instacart instability, which has been going on for years now, they just churn through executives over there. They were able to chalk that up to the founder, Apoorva Mehta, who was just kind of a maniac running that company. Just nobody could get along with him. He didn't know how to be clear with his directives. I wrote a piece about it a couple months ago uh, that they just couldn't keep product people. Like anyone who any sort of, had any product sense were like, this guy's unworkable. He has no vision. And He's not the CEO anymore. Like they pushed him out of that role um, to the side. And yet the instability continues. Well, it's very hard to unlearn. Companies become like their founders. And I mean, watching the Uber thing, I mean, people just rise to the top because they have the traits valued by the founders. So I do think it's in defense of the new CEO, you know, the the culture doesn't change overnight. Um, But I, but this one, this person, but I can understand like old lieutenant. executives leaving, you know, it's like, right. oh, the, the people that were part of the old regime, yeah, right. they're not going to make it. But someone that you like one of your first orders of business was like, let me bring in like my solid ads, you know, buddy to run things. It's not a, not a good sign about the company in any way. Uh, and so, I mean, it basically yeah. had its moment in the pandemic and whatever, if it couldn't grab land then an IPO then. That was such like a good moment. Well, that's the other thing, too. I think a lot of people that went to Instacart on the way up were like, I'm going to be rich uh, because my, my, my options are going to be so valuable. And we know that they're not going to IPO next year. Like They were supposed to IPO this year. They're not going to do it next year. Who knows if 2023 is on the table? And so if you're Carolyn and you're not loving things over there and you're not sure about you know how stable your job's going to be and you're not even going to be able to cash out your shares and who knows how valuable they'll be anyway. You know, right. like if Instacart has to raise another round and it's a down round, like that's really bad. So I should think about this in the way, like this is akin to Simone Sanders leaving Kamala Harris's office. She's like, I don't want to be the outward face for, you know, what's clearly the implosion of this Yeah, she at operation. least made it a year. I mean, do you, what is your Kamala <laughs> View. Did she make it a year? I mean, I like, thought so. th- January 2020 is when everyone started. It's it's December, 11 months. Yeah. I thought her, months. you know, there was the big piece. Was it CNN that did the big um, reported piece? And I, CNN, I, think her, I think Politico has done some stuff too. I thought her quotes were sort of like, I'm not leaving because it's terrible. <laughs> it wasn't like, I mean, that's obviously not right. a direct quote, but it wasn't like, it's not terrible. It's like, well, I'm not leaving because of the thesis of your story. Right. I'm not speaking to the thesis of your story one way or the other, you know, that's what about read the, what about bad fit? Doesn't make sense to you. <laughs> <laughs> what about cultural Absolutely. mishmash? Don't you get? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't really understand how, I mean, I don't know enough about, I mean, again, <laughs> Just a reminder, I don't cover politics. Technically, the Justice Department is law enforcement. Right. And clearly apolitical, too. Yeah. But uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I, it's true when I say I don't understand the inner workings of these offices, like congressional offices and like the office of the president or the vice president, because they're kind of their own little fiefdoms. And so, I mean, when I see them, I get that like I just 
I, I get nervous because it's like, once you go through the looking glass, like God only knows what's going on back there. Well, I sort of feel bad. I was out with some, somebody more senior in uh, the industry last night for drinks. And, you know, this person was just sort of like, you know, I could have been this bigger role, you know, but I didn't get the job. This person got it. And I was just sort of like to myself, like, I don't know that other person either. <laughs> like, w- would your life have really been that different if you'd been like, sure, you would have been richer. You definitely would have been richer, but it's like, you're, you'd 100%. be another name that nobody has heard of. And like, 100%. Be- better to come to peace with like, that he feels like he should have been the CEO of like this, you know, like, it's just sort of, I mean, obviously not to, but life's a chain of sort of wanting with the next person above you has. And, I don't think it has know. to be that. I think it doesn't it, have to be. No, I mean, I'm not, I agree. I mean, I, that, that, yeah, I, I, you know. Is it better though to not get the job that you thought you were, that you deserved and was part of your life's plan or to get the job and realize that it's a, like, it's empty, that it gives right. you no sort of, you know, soul nourishment. But the problem you, is you just say, oh, well, the problem is it's not the top, top job, you know, it's not right. the next one. Or, and, <laughs> right. and if you're the founder, it's because my board wouldn't let me be great and they stopped me. You know, it, there is no, like, I mean, it's sort yeah, of, it's, it's, it's like insecurities all the way the down story up. And you know, if you're Bezos, you can be like, well, they don't think I'm an inventor. They think I'm the op, you know, you can always right. spin Fuck some you, I'm going to Actually, space. you know, you know what? I actually think he feels okay about himself. I, know, he does. I think he's okay. But, but I do think there is a degree to which, you know, even the top, then you just reframe yourself as saying, well, I'm, I'm pursuing to be a once in a generation talent and then you weigh yourself against that the bezos thing is is great to me because i don't think he feels like it through that way and yet still that insecurity that drives executives at a different level clearly affected him when the lauren sanchez uh you know texts and scandal broke out because it wasn't enough that like her shitty brother leaked the text messages like no this had to be a plot led by the saudis uh, in order to smear me because I had one time shafted like MBS, which of course turned out to be complete bullshit. But at that level, it's like, well, I'm clearly an important person because why else would my, you know, my love text get out there? Absolutely. Like, why else? The Saudis only hack very important right. people. Right. That's the only way that it could have gotten out there. There was that picture where Leonardo DiCaprio was like looking at her and then Bezos literally put up like some tweet, like flexing, like I I, I feel like this is yeah not, no I know we're you talking about career, yeah I, I think but, we're I think we're going into a part of people's psyche that's like really dangerous. Th- this is more Bezos has uh, petty petty foibles like the rest of it, or even more. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Instacart, watch that space. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.